We're in Psalm 22 today. One of the most profound psalms in the whole book of Psalms, out of the whole 150. And the psalms are an amazing collection of messages from the heart of the writers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Many of the psalms are messianic, as the psalm we're going to read today. That is to say, they were specifically speaking about Jesus Christ, giving information about who the Messiah was, what he would experience. Others are just cries of desperation from the psalmist, wondering if God is really there, and then finally resolving that question, that doubt, in the affirmation of faith that, yes, God is there and God has heard me. But Psalm 22 stands alone in the respect that it is so incredibly specific when it describes what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. Very, very specific. Now, when David wrote this psalm, it was some 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth and was crucified. It was well before the Persians invented crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. And by the time the Romans had come on the scene, they had perfected crucifixion to make it an incredibly brutal, cruel, and painful process designed to be that way, but also one that would very specifically align with the prophetic word about what the Messiah would go through. Now, we talked a little bit last week. I went through Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God, that we have this testimony from creation that there is a God. We see the heavens and the earth. We experience this planet upon which we walk, and we see the amazing design within nature. The expanse of the heavens being just extraordinary. And within that great expanse, within that infinitesimal design of the atom, and even smaller, it shouts out there is a creator, there is a designer that has provided all of this. We ourselves, are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies are incredible. Bonnie can testify to that. Any of you in the medical field could testify to that. Do you realize that in the heart, there is a valve that is tissue paper thin that opens and closes throughout your life from the womb until you die? Tissue paper thin, and yet it controls the flow of blood. I'd like to see an engineer create something like that, that works that effectively for that long. We have a creator. But also within this book and within the book of Psalms, there are many prophecies about the coming Messiah. David himself was known to be a prophet speaking forth 
things that were yet to come. Many of the Psalms Jesus quoted from. Last week, Jeff read from Psalm 8. Jesus on the cross will quote from Psalm 22 and also Psalm 32 where he commits his spirit unto the Lord at his death. So extraordinary stuff. But in Psalm 22, we are reading about the death of Jesus Christ. His experience upon the cross and what that ultimately means for us. There's a lot to go through here, so we better get started. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. These very first words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, were spoken by Jesus upon the cross. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus' time upon the cross and an extraordinary event that occurred while he was hanging upon the cross. Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. But it says in Matthew 27, verse 45, from noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, the very first words. So Jesus is calling attention for everyone who is standing there at the cross witnessing this event. He is calling attention to Psalm 22 so that they understand what is going on here. Psalm 22 is being fulfilled. And for any of them who went back to Psalm 22, they would begin to understand some of what they were experiencing, as we will see when we read through this psalm. But Jesus is crying out, Why have you forsaken me, my God? Why are you so far from me? I'm crying out to you, but there is no answer. What is going on? Darkness covered the land for three hours, a supernatural event reflective of the reality that at that time, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, had been forsaken by the Father. Why? Why is he forsaken? Because he became sin on our behalf. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So there's this great transfer that goes on. Our sin imputed to Jesus Christ. He had never sinned. He had never done anything in violation of his Father's will. But he became sin. God imputed my sin and your sin and the sin of all humanity to him upon the cross 
from noon to three, darkness covered the earth because he became sin for us. He was, as God the Son, paying the price for our sin. And what is the wages of sin? Come on. Death. This was not yet physical death, but he was experiencing spiritual death. Punishment for the sin of the world. That is why God forsook him at that moment. You know, the suffering of the cross would have been extraordinary enough. The the crucifixion, as I said, as improved by the Romans, was designed to be incredibly torturous. It was reserved for certain types of crimes. The person would typically, as Jesus was, be scourged in advance of the crucifixion to elicit a confession from them. But the crucifixion, the person would be stripped entirely naked. Now, whenever you see Jesus being crucified in a movie, he's always got the loincloth on. That's not how it was. And we'll read about that in just a moment. He would have been stripped entirely naked, totally beaten, nails through his wrists, and then bent down like this, nails through his ankles. The whole idea was so that the person could not push themselves up. Ultimately, people who were crucified, though suffering excruciating pain, died of suffocation. They could not lift themselves up to breathe. But that would only occur after hours upon hours on the cross. But beyond that physical suffering that Jesus went through, more painful to him by far was the separation from the Father becoming sin on our behalf. But just as sin was imputed to him by the Father, the payment for our sin, spiritual death, imputed to him, so too, through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed or given or reckoned to us. So when you show up here this morning, I don't care what happened at home before you arrived here, what happened yesterday, what happened last week, what's going to happen tomorrow, I don't care. You are looked upon by God the Father as perfectly righteous in the Son because you have had His righteousness imputed to you. This great transfer happens in the Gospel. And it's amazing. It's extraordinary, but you should never, ever forget that the righteousness you possess in Christ came to you because he became sin for you. He paid the price for me that we might possess his righteousness. You see, God cannot look upon sin. It says in Isaiah 59 that it is our sins that separate us from him. And he, it says in verse 3, is enthroned as the Holy One, the one that Israel praises. In you, 
our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. There's a recognition of the eternal reality of God and His holiness. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now, some of these words, if you read through the gospel accounts of the suffering upon the cross, will sound very familiar because these very words were spoken by people standing at the foot of the cross. You see, Jesus, his journey to the cross was no surprise. It was not a shock. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 13 that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's design, God's plan, because God knew what would happen. But there's this incredible passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 describing what would happen to the Messiah. Listen to this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. In other words, there was nothing physically about Jesus that would have made you say, whoa, it's the Messiah. He was just a Jewish carpenter. But it was the way in which he lived, the words that he spoke, that revealed who he was. He was despised and rejected by all mankind. A man of suffering, well acquainted with grief. He was like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those three hours upon the cross, he had the iniquity of mankind laid upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of the people he was punished. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Isaiah 53, an amazing description of what is being talked about here in Psalm 22. The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So often, I have, and I suspect many of you have, not really given full weight to what was happening upon the cross, not really understood the profound nature. And perhaps we can't really fully appreciate God the Son becoming sin and being separated from God the Father. 
Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Now this is representative of the Jewish presence at the cross. Bashan is a place there in the Golan Heights. And the prophet Amos speaks of the, those who live in that region being represented as cows or bulls of Bashan. So this is representative of the Jewish presence at the cross. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. And that was true. That was very characteristic of the crucifixion, that the bones would become dislocated. Very painful experience. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, David, when he is writing these words, must have been astounded. Because he knows it's not talking about him. He's not experienced these things, particularly when we get to the, the part about his clothing being divided and people casting lots for them. David understood he was writing as a prophet here about the Messiah. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Now this is speaking of the Gentile presence at the cross. Gentiles were spoken of by Jews as dogs. And so here we read of the dogs surrounding the cross. The Gentile executioners encircling Jesus Christ. They pierce my hands and my feet. But all of my bones, here reflecting the fact that Jesus had no clothing on him whatsoever, are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing and cast lots for my garment. Again, a very descriptive account of crucifixion written well before the whole notion of crucifixion even became a possibility. All experienced by Jesus Christ, all reflected in the gospel accounts of him hanging upon a cross for us. Now, in verse 2, the cry is made, My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And have you ever been there in your life? Have you ever experienced that same emotion, that same sentiment, that sense that God is far away from you? That you're crying out to Him, you're going through some very difficult stuff, and yet when you cry out to God, He does not seem near. He seems far away. He is not responding to your cries for help. Have you ever been there? Sure you have you haven't get ready because you will we all go through it and yet beginning in verse 19 there's a change in the mood of the psalm we've been reading about the messiah being a worm not a man being mocked and insulted being surrounded by people who intend harm for him, suffering this extraordinary death. But in verse 19, we read, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me 
from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. There's a recognition that in spite of everything that is happening, in spite of the fact that the person making the prayer of outcry to God feels as though he's not being heard, he recognizes the faithfulness of God. He recognizes the faithfulness of God. And then he says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So in those moments when you fear that God has forsaken you, when you believe that God is nowhere near and he is not listening to your cries for help, understand that in fact he is faithful, that he is attending to what you are going through. And that, as I talked about during the communion, he is using that experience in your life to shape you, to mold you, to fashion you into a masterpiece that looks just like Jesus Christ. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Here we begin to experience the power of the resurrection. The afflicted one rising up, understanding that God has heard his prayer and that God has overcome and that through him God is going to save all of mankind. That is the theme of his praise. And he's going to make that praise before all those who fear the Lord. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek him will praise him and live forever. It's the promise of salvation in the gospel that we have through the resurrection. Now, Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead because he suffered and died. In order to rise from the dead, you have to be dead. That's what happened. He died spiritually. He died physically. But he rose from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering sin. And all of us who believe in him have also, with him, conquered the grave, conquered death, conquered sin. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the nations will bow down before him. Speaking of eternity here, where the great throng of the saved will come before the Lord, acknowledge him and sing his praises. You want to read about it? It's depicted in Revelation chapter 5. A great multitude that could not be numbered, John the Revelator says standing before the throne, casting their crowns before the Lamb who was slain, worshiping Him as He gives testimony to God for His faithfulness. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over all of the nations. The rich, we've read about the poor, now we read about the rich of the earth, feasting and worshiping. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Now this, to me, is very reflective of what we read about in Philippians chapter 2. How Jesus Christ humbled himself, even to the point of death upon a cross. But God has exalted him 
and seated him at his right hand, giving him a name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Spoken of here, all who go down to the dust, whether you are righteous or whether you are unrighteous, you will kneel before Jesus Christ and proclaim him as Lord and Savior. We just have the great privilege of doing it now. We have the wonderful opportunity to share a message with a lost world that there is a Savior who suffered for your sin, but who has risen from the dead and has given you power to live a righteous life. All posterity will serve him. Future generations talks about from age to age in the book of Ephesians, will declare the glories of his grace. And they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is great. He has done it. That's how the psalm ends. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it concludes, he has done it. Woo! Hallelujah. He has done it. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He has given new life to me. I am a new creature in Christ. Behold, all of the old things have passed away. Everything has become new to me because I am in Christ. I've been baptized into his body. So here's the application. Here is the application. God demonstrated his love towards us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while you were in the depth of your sin, no matter how low you had sunk, Christ loved you before that moment. He saw you from eternity past in him, and he gave himself for you. And then Paul further says, that if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him to us, how then will he not freely give us all things? So we have confidence that we are loved because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And because of that sacrificial death, we have confidence that all of the promises in God, as the song we sang this morning said, are yes and amen. He will be faithful to his word. He will keep his word. You will rise from the dead. Though you die, you will not remain in the grave. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air to greet the Lord, evermore to be with him. He will be faithful. Because he's already given us his son. How will he not give us all things? And then finally, a remembrance. As we celebrated communion this morning. Of everything that Jesus Christ went through for me. When I consider that. When I think upon the nails through his wrists. Through his ankles. When I think about the agony 
of not being able to breathe, of his bones out of joint, of the humiliation of being naked before the crowds as they hurled insults at him. And understand that that wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it was when my sin was imputed upon him. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that doesn't touch your heart, if that doesn't, to borrow language from the psalm, pierce to you, then nothing will. It's the love of God for you being demonstrated in his Son. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and glorious gift you have given to us in Jesus Christ. The cross stained with blood so divine is ours. And as Paul said, we will glory in the cross because of what you accomplished there. Satan thought he had won a great victory, and yet it was at the cross that our sin was paid for. And through the resurrection three days later, that our new life has been assured. We rejoice in you, and we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up. We're going to sing that old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, together.